Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. Fun episode for you guys today. We're going to cap off the Railroad Series, part three. I hope you guys enjoyed Bob last week, who has set a new standard for our guests. So everybody has to, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We were joking about the fact, we're like, we need to find the Bob, the of, Bob every of every single the episode of everything. we do. So I, I, lots of great feedback on that episode. I had so much fun doing it. And we're going to cap it off this week with talking about actual trains. So right. We talked about the history, why trains exist. We talked about how it changed America. But let's... I get... wanted to do a deep dive into the actual technology behind these behemoths. And I find it fascinating how these massive steam locomotives were able to pull just like ungodly amounts of weight. And from there, we'll explore kind of the evolution of the technology into today's diesel locomotives that you see. And we can talk to an actual engineer who drives trains today, or I guess not drive, but operate. We operate, learn. yeah, is drive is not the right nomenclature word. here. And Chris, you're also going to touch on a little about, about what made it different between America and European Yeah, there was a completely cars. different philosophy and we talked a little bit about it with Bob, but I want to get into some of the the roots of where the American train car came from and the English train car, because it, it really ties into who they were as people. Before we get to it, though, let's take a moment to talk about our sponsor, Petrolbox. Petrolbox is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, they carefully select items, including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, and publications to be sent right there to your doorstep. It's a curated selection of kind of the latest and greatest gear in the industry. And there's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. The Petrobox Basic costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrobox Premium gets you even more gear for just $39.95 a month. Check them out at mypetrolbox.com and be sure to use the code over. Overcrest at checkout to get six dollars off your first month. All right. So do Chris. I do I know how a steam engine actually works? Or do I just pretend I know? As I'm talking as an ambiguous person. Do I obviously Oh, I, I see what you're I, I do, do I know? Do I do I, I think, think you I have know. an idea, but okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna actually tell you. And okay. I want you to stop me if you don't, don't understand. understand. Okay. Right. Okay. So the fuel of a steam locomotive is generally coal, and that's used that's wrong. The fuel of a steam engine is steam. Okay, fine. Well, this is an important distinction. You've got okay. coal. The coal is is heating the fuel and making it com not combustible, but compatible with the system. The fuel is steam. Right. And coal. we'll get to the steam part, but first, the raw input yes. is generally I would, I would say coal. We could say that it's the energy source, right? The it's, energy it's, source. Yes. Fine. We're getting semantically <laughs> correct already. Well, it's definitely not the fuel, but Chris, go ahead. the energy source of a steam locomotive <laughs> is generally coal. And this is used to run a fire inside the engine, which is burning what's in called a firebox. So that is where the fire happens, what? is in the firebox. What is the man called that shovels? He the, is called the fireman. The fireman. Yeah, I the like that. The opposite job of traditional firemen who try yeah, to put out that, fires. <laughs> this guy keeps the fire going. He keeps it going. Now, I must have been in, think of that job. I am going to tell you with a secondhand account what that job is like. Okay, I'll let you continue. But let me first do a little, uh, a little sidebar. Okay. I say generally it was coal because these trains were also able to run off of wood, oil, or coke. What's coke? Well, I've heard of Coke as a fuel before. It's not just Coca-Cola, but I wanted to understand what exactly it is. Coke is actually a byproduct of coal itself. It's kind of the the leftover, like, resiny kind of scrape stuff that you scrape off of things, right? It can be, yes. Yeah, yeah so Because when you think of, like, I've heard people talk about direct injection engines, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, the valves are all coked up. Yeah, right? and exactly. About, I didn't like, even think of that and put yeah, that together, but it's, you're right. It's the, it's the, the grimy leftovers of, of, the, of the byproduct. Yeah, so coal, as we know, is basically the shiny black fossil fuel that is taken raw right from the ground. That's why they're coal mines. Coke, on the other hand, is actually distilled from coal. So coke is much more efficient, too. It burns cleaner with less smoke and carbon emissions, but more importantly, it burns hotter so do we burn coke in our 
like power plants and stuff like that today or do we no. not know? Okay. Because you have to, to refine coal to get to Coke. Okay. And I'll tell you about that. So the process of creating Coke is called destructive distillation. Ooh, I like that. That is an awesome <laughs> band name, right? It that is. is like some hard metal band. It sounds right also there. like an alternative uh, definition of getting drunk. Destructive distillation? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I suppose you're distilling yourself <laughs> destructively. So the process entails heating coal to a temperature above 1,832 degrees Fahrenheit without any oxygen. So this causes... This has to be done in a vacuum. You Correct. Okay. This causes the impurities and flammables off the coal to burn off, leaving a dull, porous substance with high carbon content that is Coke. So besides burning hotter and cleaner, Coke was more desirable because you would get more BTUs out of a given mass of Coke than you would coal. As with anything, once the impurities are removed, you have a better, more efficient product. It's, that could yeah, be it's pure. iron, steel, aluminum, whatever. Whatever the most pure form of it is the strongest, uh, easiest to work with product that there is. And so because you can get more heat out of a given mass of Coke, that means that Coke will basically get the train further for the equal amount of coal. So that's why right. Coke is better. Anyways, this fuel, whether Plus it's Plus you're transporting coke less coal. of it. You can have more Coke. Exactly. Like the, the amount that you're able to bring with you is also Correct. far more dense. So the raw input or the fuel, which you don't like that term, is manually- That's because it's wrong. Shoveled into the firebox by the fireman, as we talked about in the cab. And here's something interesting. So Nikki's dad- No, Nikki's your wife. Nikki is my wife. Yes. So my father-in-law, he got to be a fireman for a day. On a steam locomotive. Okay. So up until a few years ago, there was an operating steam locomotive in Colorado. And you could basically pay to go on. They show you what to do and you work the train for a day. So you get to pay to work your ass yes, off. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. And it was back-breaking work. It was extremely hot. He said that... First of all, they give you a fireproof uniform. That's what the overalls are. It's just like a thick canvas that's fireproof because there's all these sparks and tinder right. coming out as you're literally shoveling your ass you wear, off. Do you wear goggles? You must wear goggles. I don't remember if there's goggles or not. It's got to be goggles. I don't remember goggles, I want but there I to know be goggles. there was head to toe. You were just covered in black soot by right. the end of the day. And what's also more interesting is he said that fire gets so hot that the entire cabin is hot to the touch because it's all metal right and he said there was a little hose hanging there on the side of the cabin that you would periodically hose down the floor because you could tell your shoes were starting to melt <laughs> it was that hot so the fireman is accompanied by the driver whose job it is to actually operate the train right so that's where you're actually you're on the sticks Chris, yes as we learn later in our i think our that interview. in a steam train you're on some wheels i think you've got pressure wheels that it, you're turning yeah i think it, it's a little it, bit different it probably is okay so the firebox that you're tending is actually sucks air from underneath the train which i didn't realize so the actual intake as we think about in a modern internal combustion engine is actually under the train itself which i guess makes sense since the best way to feed a fire is from below, below yeah. So the fuel sits on top of grates inside the firebox. So all that coal you're shoveling in, that lands on top of grates where that lets the dead ash fall down into the ash pan. Okay. The ash pan then gets emptied every once in a while in the train yard, basically, yep, yep. where they can clean it up. Sure. That also lets the uh, the fresh air come in through that grate. So you're, it's how it's stoked then is Correct. through that. Yes. Yeah, the firebox allows heat and smoke to escape Forward, so you think of a massive train locomotive. It looks like a big tube. Basically. Well, that's all the water, right? The big tube generally is the water. That's right? the boiler. Yes. Right, and then yes. Yes. So think of the tube. Right now we're at the cab, which is the back. Yep. And then you have the firebox, which is right in front of the cab, where they're stoking the actual fire. So the firebox allows heat and smoke to escape forward through a series of fire tubes running the length of the entire boiler system. So think of this as a giant radiator, but in reverse. You have hot air traveling through the passages inside the boiler, which is filled with water. This is how the water is heated to boiling point, which in turn creates steam. And as more and more water evaporates, steam builds up inside the boiler, creating the necessary pressure. On top of the boiler, at the very topmost point of the whole system is the steam dome. Yeah, we see that. It's the little domey thing sitting on top of the... There's actually two domes, and I forgot okay. to write about the second dome. The second dome is almost even more interesting. Okay. That is the sand dome. It uh -huh. literally is full of sand, and it has little tubes that deposit sand on the rails in front of the drive wheels. Uh -huh. That's yeah, how you, you actually get traction. get traction. 
So there's little like valves that you can operate when you're starting to slide or if it's just starting out, you need more traction. I can't imagine that's good for the track. I would assume it'd yeah. be very abrasive, yeah. but there's a lot of metal what on those rails. What else are you supposed to do? Yeah, it's smooth. Yeah. All you've got is the weight of the thousands of tons. So anyways, the steam dome though, that's where the hottest steam travels. It's obviously heat rises. Your hottest steam is inside the steam dome. And inside the steam dome is positioned the actual throttle valve, which allows this hot steam to be directed down into the cylinders. Or dispersed, right? It does, does it do either or? Well, also integrated in the steam dome is the safety valve. Aha. Uh -huh. That is critical. It, when it reaches critical pressure and the actual boiler... Is this what makes the whistling sound? For exploding. No, that's the whistle. Okay. So that's, that's a different. separate component. Okay. This is like a fail safe that's basically just a spring loaded Like, trap holy door. shit, this boiler this, is going to explode. This boiler's in danger mode. Yeah. It's going to explode. And so they had this basically safety release valve. I'm just there, imagining which, the little pressure valve that's inside yes! the, the cab. Yeah, and it the, goes into the, the red. And the glass cracks. Oh, and the guy's yeah. like, oh shit. And oh, he pulls the, the safety valve and it doesn't work and the train's running away. Yeah, that'd be great. No, I think the safety valve is in manual. That's just the thing that, in oh. case you. Yeah. Okay. So do it just that. does its thing. It's a failsafe. Yes. Which, because in the early days, these spoilers did explode a lot with horrifying results. It is yeah. massively powerful. Yeah. Trains, heavy and steamboats. steel just exploding everywhere like shrapnel. shrapnel. Yeah. And by the way, it's scalding hot material. Yeah. Not great. Killed a lot so, of people. A yeah. lot of people. So when the throttle valve is open, pressurized steam is directed from the steam dome down towards the cylinders but not before it gets passed through the superheater. All right, I'm in, I'm, the I'm in a superheater. The superheater feeds steam back through the boiler tubes to heat the steam, quote, beyond the boiling temperature of the water given the pressure, and this is called dry steam. So it's so it, superheated it's steam. It's superheated steam. This dry steam is even higher pressure and creates more power when fed into the cylinders. Now, there are two sets of cylinders, one set on each side of the train. And in the case of like the big boy we talked about yep. last week, there's actually two sets of cylinders on each side running both of the sets of drive wheels. So I'm always amazed when I look at these the cylinders that are on the side and the speed at which they move. Obviously, we can't see. And they're it. like the mass the, behind them. The absolute. They're that's they are massive. massive. Yeah, they no, are they're, massive. They're heavy. But I'm thinking of like whenever I'm driving my car, I'm like, man, I'm looking at the tachometer. It's like 2,500 RPMs. I'm just cruising along, and I'm just like visualizing everything, going just like the, the speed and volume of, of the parts that are moving around. But then you look at the train, and it's all on on display and you can see it all. Yeah. And I think that's one of the romantic things about trains is you get to see all this stuff right. just, just getting thrown around. And it's just raw power. Violence. Just, yes. Just pure unadulterated violence. Yes. It's, it's so hot. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's talk about these cylinders on the train. Um, so given a single set, so here's a single cylinder. Let's think of it on one side of the steam locomotive. So each side or each individual piston is connected to the drive wheel right. via a connecting rod. And let's say you have a set of like four or maybe two drive wheels. The piston is actually only connected to one drive wheel. The rest of them are linked via basically a linking rod that connects all of those gotcha. separate drive wheels attached yeah, to it. Yeah, because generally you see four. I right. think you see yep. four big wheels. Yep, and so those are all interconnected with a single connecting rod. And then the piston's connecting rod basically only drives one out of the set of the four. Okay, the other cylinder contains the slide valve, which allows fresh steam to enter and use steam to exhaust from the piston cylinder. So this way the piston is actually pushed, not just in an internal combustion engine where it pushes the piston down or back in its stroke. Yep. This opens up the other side then, like an air compressor, and you get a power stroke going both back and forth. So it's, instead of being... That's why it kind of sounds like junk, 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 junk. That's actually not why it sounds like that. Oh, great. <laughs> Sorry. That's actually the blast pipe that oh. you're hearing. Ooh, blast pipe. Yeah, we'll get to that, <laughs> that here good in a minute. Okay. But anyways, so you have a power stroke both forward and backward on the steam piston. Okay. Okay. So what is that called? Would that be considered a, a two-stroke engine? No. No. What would because you call that? Because two-stroke, you're still only... 
I don't know, like a single stroke engine? It is single, but it's operating in both directions. Well, I guess it's unique. It's a steam piston. It's a steam piston. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So um, that reciprocating motion then is used to rotate the drive wheel, like I said, and then the drive wheel is linked to the other wheels in that setup. The steam, having now expended its force, is directed into the smoke box at the front of the train, or it is directed through the blast pipe. Now, as you mentioned on our first episode, if you recall, this blast pipe is what revolutionize the steam engine design. How so? It creates a Venturi effect in the smoke box, which pulls smoke and hot air from the firebox through the, the boiler tubes. So this has the effect of pulling fresh air from the intake through the firebox, producing a hotter fire. Right. Before this, the fires couldn't get hot enough to really create that much power out of the steam. So what you're hearing is that chunk, 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 chunk. That is the steam going through the pistons and then back up through the smoke box via that blast pipe. I always thought it was just the piston, but it's not at all. Well, where you're hearing it is actually up through the smoke box. Right, right, right. At the front of the train. Now, with this process, you need a lot of water, and the boiler needs to be constantly replenished. Now, during the very early days of steam locomotives, water stops were necessary every, like, 7 to 10 miles, and the trains basically spent more time taking on water than they did traveling. So was it a big thing to try and find out which system was the most efficient with water? Because if you could make a steam train more efficient with the water, you could go farther, faster. I don't know if there's really a different design that can make it more efficient because it's basically directly related. Steam, the amount of steam you have is the amount of power you have. I guess and in the, order to get that, you have water. The it's super, kind of a quantity. The superheating is probably the only thing that added right. to the efficiency of it is getting more power out of a certain amount of steam. Correct. Beyond that, there's really not much yeah, you can it's, do. Yeah, it's all just a fixed quantity of water. But that's why they're just so massive, I think, in the front. When you look at how big some of these steam trains are, right. the boiler is just enormous because it has you know 20,000 gallons of water. Yeah, in but it. the fact that it would go only 10 miles before burning all that steam up. So someone finally had the brilliant idea to simply carry extra water behind the locomotive. Sure. This car, called the Tender, also carried extra coal to be shoveled in by the fireman. So with a fully stocked Tender car, trains could now reach up to 150 miles before needing to refill. And when a train needed to stop for water, there were established water towers positioned along the track. And the boiler man would then swing out the spigot arm over the water tender and jerk a chain, which opened a valve on the spigot to start watering the chain or the train rather from these water how towers. Are we, how are we pumping the water into these water Manually. towers? Okay, so there's a guy. We either oh either it's a windmill is pumping it up from a well. Or well, there's a river, probably. With a, a lot of times, yeah, they actually used, they diverted rivers to have these filling ponds. And for some reason, I, I didn't even list it here because I couldn't find more information. They would stock these filling ponds with fish. Oh, why not? I don't know if that's just <laughs> for like a food source for the town there. But it probably then, helps keep the water clean, too. Yes, but I wonder how many times the trains got stocked with <laughs> fish by accident. Maybe that's boiled fish. It sounds great. Let's eat it. <laughs> I don't know how that would work on the train. <laughs> I don't know. You're probably not going to have access to any of that. No. I'm just saying there's probably a guy either pumping it yeah, or there's so water. Often, or there's- more often than not, it's a hand crank pump that the guy would get out, pump up the water tank as they're pumping it into the train. Right. Which is terrible work. That's it a is. lot of pumping. Right. So anyways, the guy though, he generally jerks this chain that you can reach from the train and that's what fills up the boiler. And this gave rise to the 19th century slang term jerk water town for towns that are basically too insignificant to have a regular train station but are on the train line some water could you get on and off the train at the jerk water town i don't think you're supposed to but i have to imagine they would like throw like bags of letters and mail on board probably um what's interesting is some of these watering stops did grow into established settlements for example the town of colinga california was formerly known simply as Coaling Station A. So, Coaling Station A became Coaling A or Colinga. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Unique kind of way of naming. Yeah, for sure. Something. So, now besides the locomotive engine itself and the tender car, there were various different train cars, each built for a specific purpose. We obviously know about different box cars and flat cars used for hauling freight, but what I find interesting are the different passenger cars. Well, it's not necessarily the different passenger cars as much as it is the difference in uh, philosophy of travel. Okay, okay. so 
In England, we know that most of the... You got some flack for calling it England. Just say Europe. Oh, I'm sorry. It, not Europe. I which I should say the United Kingdom. I did take a huge, like, we've got some Scottish <laughs> listeners. And they're like... Why are like, you lumping us in? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, I should know better. I'm Welsh. So I should know better that, you yeah. know, England is a large part, but also we have Wales and Scotland and everything else. In uh, the United Kingdom, or Britain, I guess yes. I should be saying, uh, we, we talked about how all the tracks were straight. Yes. Right? So, so here, they were all curved. Now the, the the cars in England were much smaller, okay, and the the wheels were much closer together, and they and they couldn't turn like they would need <laughs> to be able to turn on our tracks. So they actually invented an entire new what's called a bogey system okay. for the wheels, which is when, when you look at it, it's uh it's it pivots right. Oh and, sure, and that's the way that they ended up making the cars here be able to work, be able to, be, go, be around able to go around corners without derailing derail. and and killing everybody. But more interesting is how to travel, what it was that people were used to doing. And we talked about it a little bit, but the people, the way that people mostly traveled before the trains in America was boats, boats, steamboats, steamboats, which are basically huge barges. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, it's just this huge multi-level thing with a paddle wheel on it and they would be run by steam. They had restaurants. It was basically, it was your entire, anything you could do in a small town, you could do on a steamboat. Right. It's basically like a resort that's floating. A hundred percent. And obviously they had different types of steamboats for traveling, for transporting goods and, and stuff like that. But if you were a passenger on a steamboat, it was something that was, it was a good experience. Right. And it was, there was an air of luxury about it. Right. And one, some guy said an American would not much care for our way of traveling in a fixed seat in a cramped carriage under lock and key he would sense a lack of air he would be suffocated and that's kind of the way that the train cars were over there here they were just open and big and kind of based on the on on the american steamboat right Right. so the expectations for travel in England, the traveler is not, in actual fact, free to move around beyond the compartment that he or she occupies. So there was no moving around. And there was also a kind of a class system on the trains in England, too. Here, it was just wide open. Right. Poor people sat next to rich people, whoever could afford a seat, and, and that's kind of how it was. Alexis de Tocqueville, who, is, who wrote a great book, Democracy in America, which is a really, really good book. If you want to get into the philosophy behind the founding and the enlightenment and everything like that, he's a, he's a really good pontificator on American culture. He said, the classless open car was economically, politically, psychologically, and culturally the appropriate travel container for a democratic pioneer society, while the compartment car, on the other hand, expressed the social conditions prevailing in Europe, which sucked. We all know what happened. <laughs> we had many wars over there. Things didn't look good in Europe. America was looking pretty good. And I, there, I, I like that idea that the train car itself in America symbolized democracy. That's, that's correct. In designing their rolling stock, the Americans appear to have taken their ideas more from a ship than from an ordinary carriage. The French railroad engineers Lavion and Pontin found that the opportunity to move around during this journey was analogous to what is possible on board a ship instead of the immobil- immobility imposed on European travelers. Um, John Gloeg wrote in a book called Victorian Comfort. Now, there's not a lot of accounts of, we, we're kind of surmising, right, just by looking at the way that the cars were, and we're, we're comparing them to the steamboat, that this, sure. is, this, is, this is one of the only written accounts of saying, yeah, it came from steamboats, but we can see. Yeah, you can see, can see in see. hindsight that that is the case. Gloeg speaks of the extreme importance of the river steamboats in American travel before the railroad era, and he concludes... The design of these river steamers had a permanent effect on American standards of comfort and travel. He conjectures, the long and spacious saloons may well have been the prototypes for the American railroad cars. In corroboration, he presents side-by-side illustrations of a riverboat saloon and the Pullman car interior. There is one piece of proof for that formal influence which otherwise manifested itself indirectly becoming evident only by the means of historical reconstruction which is what we're kind of talking about kind of looking back yeah we can kind of make sense um in the boston journal the american traveler in 1829 when the first american railroad had not yet been built as the uh, designer himself noted what was proposed and illustrated was not so much a carriage as rather that which may emphatically be termed of as a land barge (laughs) and to the traveler will furnish an idea of all the convenience and comfort which belong to the best steamboats the spatial divisions correspond exactly to those of a steamer it is constructed with a cabin berths 
uh, berths, etc., below a promenade, a deck, awnings, seats, uh, referring to the two decks of the car. So you'd have two decks. Right. L.C. Hunter uh, said this of the European and American train. A world in miniature was the phrase with which many literary travelers were wont to describe the Western steamboat. And such in truth it was. Here, all the essential processes of living went on, keyed to a higher pitch than in the ordinary course of land-bound existence. I love that. Land-bound existence. Here, people labored, ate, slept, amused themselves, suffered illness and hardship, and not infrequently died. Here, luxury and poverty, overindulgence and deprivation, freedom and bondage were found in close proximity. Here, all the ranks and classes were represented. Proletarian and the Chattel slave, frontiersman and emigrant, merchant and manufacturer, farmer and planter. Here was a society with a distinctive life and folkways all its own. Here was a freedom of intercourse among persons of different rank and from different walks of life, which impressed foreign observers as symbolic of the egalitarian quality of American life. Yes! That's basically what our train was compared to Britain's train. Was Britain's train was, I don't want to be with those people. I want to be <laughs> locked in my little box on this tiny little train car. Uh-huh. Here, this is representation, representative of, of exploration and intermingling with other right, people. The melting and pot. The melting pot of American egalitarian society. And I just thought just, that was super interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. It's right there in the construction of the train cars themselves. And we certainly can't talk about different train car designs without discussing my favorite. I think everyone's favorite train car. What is it? The caboose. The caboose. Now, the term caboose can be traced back to the obsolete low German word cabhus, which was a small <laughs> cabin erected on a sailing ship's main deck. So the term was used I've in- I've never heard of it represented in, in that way as a ship. I hadn't either. And this is what's interesting. So why did they basically bring this term over? Well, the term was used in English at least by 1805 when it was used in a New York Chronicle article describing a New England shipwreck which reported that, quote, survivor William Duncan drifted aboard the Canboose. <laughs> so the ship basically sank, but he's in the little shanty somehow yeah. surviving. Yeah. And the use of the caboose on trains began in the 1830s when railroads housed trainmen in shanties, basically just built onto boxcars or flat cars. And with longer journeys, the men working on the train needed a place to rest and sleep. After all, as we learned, the cabin of the locomotive wasn't a very relaxing place. So they basically built these shanties out on cars as they're traveling long distance to go and take a break. I thought this was something like, hey, we're just going to make sure, like, if someone from the caboose doesn't respond, we've lost somebody. That is part of it. That's not where it came from. Okay. Though. The caboose, in essence, then, provided the train crew with a shelter. It made sense for the caboose to be placed at the very last car in the train, since the crew could then exit the train for switching and protect the rear of the train when stopped. As it turns out, bandits were actually commonly a thing. So they would sit back there with a rifle. Yes. Yeah, that's awesome. The rear of the train also made for the perfect vantage point to inspect the train for problems, such as shifting loads, broken or dragging equipment, and hot boxes. That's something you do your wife in bed. <laughs> hot box? Have you ever never gotten a hot box before? You, okay, I was going with the other definition of a hot box. Okay. That's where you just smoke pot and keep it in a contained area. Oh, that's not what like I was thinking Like hot boxing of. a car? Yeah. That's, yeah, that's not what this is either. So it's a term to describe overheated axle bearings, which were a serious fire and derailment threat. There's so much friction on these heavy trains moving at speed that they would literally get red hot. How did they grease these? Were they, because now we have like Zerk fittings where we just pump grease into things. <laughs> How did they grease I don't these? know. I have, have no to, clue. I bet they had to take them apart, pack it's a bunch of grease right, in, It's and put obviously it back a together. contained setup if it's called a box. Right. So it must just be literally a big metal box full of grease. Right. Uh, the caboose would also have a desk for the conductor to keep records and handle his business. For longer so it's trips, it's a traveling office. It is an office. It's a little rec room. It's where they prepare food. And for longer trips, the caboose provided minimal living quarters and was frequently personalized and decorated with pictures and posters. Just imagine, Chris, the pinup girls of the <laughs> 1830s just adorning the walls. Just a calendar, yeah. I can... So one distinctive feature of a traditional caboose is the cupola 
which is the small windowed projection on the top of yeah, it. Yeah, like a little four little windows. It looks like a tiny little house. It's got a little Right, you know, it's Eve. the little yeah. top box on top of the regular boxcar looking caboose. The invention of the cupola is attributed to T.B. Watson, who was a freight conductor on the Chicago and Northwestern Railway. In 1898, he wrote... Quote, during night, during, I'm not 19, 18. <laughs> during the 1860s, I was a conductor on the CNNW. One day, late in the summer of 1863, I received orders to give my caboose to the conductor of a construction train and take an empty boxcar to use as caboose. This car happened to have a hole in the roof, about two feet square. I stacked up the lamp and toolboxes under the hole and sat with my head and shoulders above the roof. Later, I suggested putting a box around the hole with glass in it so I could have an easy pilot house to sit and watch the train. So he wants to be able to watch over all the other cars and it see wasn't, all the way up. It wasn't a thing until then, until he's like, wait a minute, there's a hole in this roof. Instead of climbing up on top or trying to look down the side, I can just pop my head out sure. here and look at the entire train. And such was born the classic shape of the little red caboose, which was colored as such, that being red, by the way, to easily identify the end of the train. There would also be, in later uh, times, basically a red signal. And if you saw the red signal at the end of the train, you know that that was the end of the train. So you can see the end approaching, and also you know that no cars fell off because right. you still see <laughs> the red light at the end. Cabooses reigned for 120 years, and until the 1980s, 80s were actually mandated by law in both the U.S. and Canada. They were required by all freight trains to have a caboose and a full crew for safety. However, I wonder when they stopped carrying guns. When was that a thing? When was like we're just going to leave the Winchester 3030 home today? We I bet just don't need it. I would be willing to bet cabooses up until they were kind of. Cotton put road. out to pasture. Probably I bet had they a, probably had a gun. Probably there. had a firearm of some sort. I would, yeah, I would guess. I wonder if even the the we should ask this question of our engineer. I wonder if they have a gun. What if they carry a firearm in the engine as the a safety precaution? As a safety precaution, because that I mean, think of the absolute destruction that could occur if you got a hold of a train. And True. Just, just I didn't put, even think of that part just of it. Put the sticks down, right? I mean, it could yeah. be, especially if you had uh, dangerous materials. I bet those dudes have a gun. I almost guarantee it's required. Interesting. Yeah. Um, as for the caboose, though, however, technology eventually advanced to a point where the railroads, in an effort to save money by reducing crew members, stated that the cabooses were unnecessary. And 40 years ago, this story aired on CBC Radio Canada. The first cabooseless trains in Canada are running today. A CP train left Winnipeg this morning for Thunder Bay without a caboose. And an empty train without a caboose went the other way. The car and the crew members inside, who usually watch for trouble, were replaced by an electronic device. Rail officials say it will be safer and cheaper. Scott Dipple reports. The CP train pulled out of Winnipeg at 7.15 this morning. But instead of a caboose, the train has an electronic device attached to its last car. A spokesperson for CP, Janice Feldstad, says the electronic device is about the size of an electric typewriter. She says the device is called TIBS, Train Information Braking System. Felstad says cabooses are going to gradually disappear. The plan is, for the next few months at any rate, that we will be implementing cabooseless operations uh, on our main line um, where, um, where the track structure permits, meaning where we have uh, automatic switches. This is the latest step in a controversy that started several years ago. The unions fear running trains without cabooses will jeopardize safety and cost their members jobs. Felstad says the railway has been testing the new technology and negotiating the changes with their unions. Union leaders couldn't be reached for comment today, but Felstad says they're not expecting any layoffs. A spokesman for CN says they're planning to drop the cabooses from their trains in February. Scott Dipple, CBC News, Winnipeg. So it was my jobs, basically, is kind yeah. of the thing that I'm hearing there. Exactly. And it was kind of interesting. They didn't talk about it here, but the caboose was the only non-money-making carriage in the entire railroad industry, right? right? Right, They're not making money by carrying things on it or powering trains. So it was always, like, the most decrepit, old, never-updated, crappiest train car. Yeah, still has think, the pinup girls from 1830. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> which I think kind of just adds the romanticism of, like, it's the old 
just kind of dormitory, dingy little car yeah. that was kind of from a time gone by. And in addition to electronics being able to replace the guy watching the train from up in the cupola, new diesel locomotives had large cabs that could house the entire crew. It just wasn't necessary. It wasn't necessary. And speaking of diesel locomotives, the move away from steam locomotives happened gradually from the 1930s right up to the 1960s. This transition was actually given its own moniker of dieselization. It sounds like something that you call a diesel that's running away. That thing's dieselization! (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's better than Dieselgate. That is a totally different diesel moniker. So this was the dieselization of the American Railroad. Why was this necessary? It was... Power? Was it just power? No. Okay, what was... Because steam trams make plenty of power. They're dirty. They're sooty. The, they they you, first you're used, saying things about diesel, right? Right. No, I'm saying things about. <laughs> I mean, it's like, realistically diesel's dirty. No, Steam's- not as diesel, not as dirty and soot and polluting as steam locomotives. Our Amish guy that was complaining about soot being on his children's faces would love the diesel train, is what you're saying? Yes. From our first episode on this. Remember the, the the Amish guy was like, I can't do anything. I bought this house. And oh, right. My, he said there's soot everywhere. I can't my, see my wife across the yeah, dinner this table. Guy this guy right. would So this. that was kind of the, so a lot of, it started with passenger trains. The first diesel electric cha- trains were passenger trains out in big cities. And well, that's not true because the first diesel engines had been used as early as 1917 when General Electric produced three experimental diesel electric locomotives the first known to be built in the united states the first regular use of diesel electric locomotives was in switching or shunter applications so shunters are the little engines that are used in rail yards basically just to push the cars around and organize a full train so those were the first ones to be used diesel electric because it just made more sense think of a steam train it takes a while to get it literally up to steam Right. That's where that term comes from. You have to get the the fire stoking hot, wait for Takes the time. Yeah. boilers to get up to speed. Well, if you're just moving a few cars around to connect them up in a train yard, it makes more sense to use something that's instant like a diesel electric car. That's what these shunters are. By this time, the industry sources were beginning to suggest, quote, the outstanding advantages of this new form of motive power. In 1929 the Canadian National Railway became the first North American railway to use diesels in mainland service. However, these early diesels proved expensive and basically unreliable. Right, as with anything that's new. It would be another five years before diesel electric propulsion would be successfully used in mainline service. One major hurdle to adopting diesel trains was simply their lack of power compared to a steam engine. A major effort to overcome this. So was were these naturally aspirated diesel engines? Yes. At the time, so just dogs. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So General Motors actually was the first to try to address this. GM's Winton Engine Corporation sought to develop diesel engines suitable for high-speed mobile use. The first milestone in that effort was the Winton 201A. It was a two-stroke, mechanically aspirated. AKA supercharged. Yeah, mechanically aspirated. I like that term, mechanically yeah. aspirated. I don't know. Anything with super in it sounds pretty good. Super, That's true. Yeah, yeah, Superman, super it was heated, a supercharged. Uniflow scavenged, unit injected diesel engine. So, diesel electric lo- railroad locomotion entered mainline service when the streamliners were used to haul passengers starting in late 1934. This was on the Burlington Railroad and Union. Pacific. They were custom-built diesel streamliners. The Burlington Zephyr trains. These things are pretty. They are beautiful. Any train in this era... This is the Art Deco period. Exactly. Phenomenal. Beautiful-looking train. They really are. The Burlington Zephyr train used a 600-horsepower diesel-electric engine made by GM's Electromotive Corporation. These lightweight diesel streamliners, the mid-1930s, demonstrated the advantage of diesel for passenger service. It's like we talked about. They're clean. They can basically start up instantly. You don't have to tend to them, and they don't leave stop. soot behind. You don't have to stop for water. You, again, yeah. <laughs> GM, seeing the success of So these, does this mean these jerk towns are dead? I mean, do we have like ghost towns for these yes, jerk towns? Yes, most jerk towns are all ghost towns. Okay. And you can look online and find them, and you can still see these big water towers. And that's all that's left. That's all that's left of them, basically. 
an abandoned building. It's kind of cool. There are a handful of these jerk towns that survived, like Kalinga. Yeah, yeah. Was it Kalinga? Kalinga. 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 Uh, GM saw the success of these streamliners and was basically eager to demonstrate diesel's viability and freight service as well. With the U.S. entering World War II, it obviously slowed any conversion to diesel. The you, know, war, you know why? Because they needed the diesel engines. Not even that. They were ripping up rail line to supply wow. steel for the war. If there, yeah. was, if there was a lot of spurs and a lot of rail line, there was, like we talked about, there's way too many rail lines that were built in the 1800s and yeah. early 20th century. There was a lot. They yeah. built a lot of them, and they didn't have any steel. So what do they do? They ripped up the rail line to fund the war, to build wow. to build, you know, planes, tanks, everything. Well, also during that time, every single diesel engine that was produced was basically given to the Navy. Right. Yep. So you can't be building trains out of them. Um, then during the petroleum crisis of 1942 and 43, cold-fired steam basically had the advantage. It didn't use a fuel that was in critically short supply. So right. they kind of had a second heyday. EMD was later allowed to increase the production of its, basically, its big diesel locomotives, and most in the locomotive business were restricted to making switch engines and steam locomotives. So again, they just, they couldn't do much during that that year. But early post-war era, EMD dominated the market for mainline locomotives with their E and F series locomotives. Uh, EMD launched their GP series, which is a road switcher locomotive. What is road, swi road switcher locomotive? That is not yeah. basically a full freight line locomotive. It's in between that and the shunter. Okay. So it's like a midsize. Exactly. Gotcha. Um, that displaced all our locomotives in the freight market, including their own F-Line series. And from there, dieselization became a runaway train. Have they ever had a runaway diesel engine on a train? Or I guess it doesn't really matter. Because no, it doesn't, because you just turn off the It's not mechanically electric. connected to exactly. the wheels. Okay, let's... Uh, in late 1965, EMD introduced the enlarged 645 engine. Let me tell you this about this engine, Chris. Okay. Power ratings were from 2,300 horsepower for the V12 two-cycle supercharged engine. They call it turbocharged, but it is a mechanical supercharger. They had a 3,000 horsepower V16 two-cycle supercharged diesel. And in late 1965, EMD built their first 20-cylinder engine. <laughs> it's a supercharged two-cycle V20, making 3,600 horsepower. That was back in 65. In 65, where everybody else is running around barely, you know, with these little V8s with low compression, making exactly. no power. The EMD became one of the most successful diesel locomotive designs in history, both in terms of sales and service longevity. A total of 3,945 SD40.2 units were built. Are any of these still used? Do they yes. use this stuff still they today? They are. Yeah, and it's basically that design hasn't changed a whole lot. This is what you think of when you think of these no, like normal freight locomotives. All we're changing now is making the diesel engine more efficient. Yep. That's basically the yeah, only thing. Yeah, there were obviously thing. advancements in electronics as well. Yep. The generators. Diesel and injection, the, that kind of thing. Because everything motors. back at this time would have been mechanically injected. You right. know, would have had a mechanical injection pump. Uh, but now I, w I wonder if they're probably electronically injected just for efficiency's sake. Probably. So I wanted to get an idea what these locomotives are like. And it just so happens that one of our listeners is an engineer of one of these EMD locomotives. Hello. Hey, Toby, it's Jake. And Chris. Hey. Hey, how's it going? Are you on a train right now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that is... Uh... Is that, nope, I am not. Is that not allowed? Because we did an article uh, or a news episode the other week where a guy drove a train into a reef because he was trying to find cell phone no, service. No, that, that was a boat. A bo oh, yeah, I'm sorry, a boat into a reef. I suppose you can't just drive the train to get well, more cell phone service. <laughs> no, but you can, turns out, drive it into an Amtrak train while on your phone, as, right. as we'll talk about. When you're texting and training, I mean, that, or I guess, what, what is it called when you're driving We'll get into it. I want to get into that. Are you locomotiving? Nope. Stop, Chris. Don't get ahead of ourselves. All right, I'm sorry. Toby, you have been a train engineer for a local railroad here for nearly 15 years, and I have to ask you, what is it like to drive... A train, but I suppose drive is the wrong term. You don't really drive a train. Do you? Do you operate a train you, you or you, do you pilot a locomotive? Do you, <laughs> you locomote it? <laughs> you no, you no, you operate it. Um, operate, you operate, operate, it. operate the train. Yes, yeah, so you engineer the movement of the train. Which hence the name I was engineer. Yeah, when I talked to you before, I was kind of joking. I was like, I know you're an engineer, but does that mean like you you have an engineering degree and you just happen to work for the railroad, or are you actually 
the engineer, it's like the, the, the driver. It's the verb form of engineer, I guess. Because you have um, an engineer who creates something, right? They, they, they right. design something, and you have an engineer. He's the verb. He's doing something. He's engineering it. Correct, yes. Yeah. So I'm engineering the movements of the train. So it's, it's a little different than uh, like a mechanical engineer or a civil engineer. But. I'm guessing you don't have a steering wheel. Uh, no, there is no <laughs> steering wheel. Um, it's just, it's a, it's a variety of levers. Um, you have your, you know, obviously your throttle lever, your brake levers, um, your reverser, which is, uh, dictates which direction you go forward or back. And then, uh, you have what's called a dynamic brake lever, which is, uh, kind of like a regen, uh, system on the Tesla. Um, is so, how the dynamic brake reverse or dy- dynamic brake works. Do you guys have any foot pedals at all? I mean, is it considered just a flooring? big throttle? Like pedal? if you mash the throttle, is it considered flooring <laughs> it, or what do you guys call it? Do you call like levering it? What is actually putting it in the corner? Um, putting it in the corner. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. Um, yeah, it's just putting the throttle all the way into throttle eight. You know, putting it in the corner. <laughs> That's pretty good. I like it. <laughs> so when you put it into the throttle, we're putting the throttle into the corner. What kind of speeds can you get out of these trains? Uh, it, it, it varies. It varies on the, the weight of the train, how much you're pulling, how many, um, axles you have powering the train. How, how about we have a naked powers? train, one locomotive. And I, it's funny. I, I asked Bob this last week about the big boy train too. I just want to know how fast it can go. Well, you, you, have, you were referencing uh, back to the future part three, right? That's correct. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Yeah. So yes. the big boy, we found out cannot go 88 miles per hour, but surely you can. If the governor is set up correctly, yes. Um, I believe the ones that we operate or the ones that I operate are only set to 73 miles per hour before they go into a fault. All right, let's call up APR. Let's chip your train, (laughs) remove the governor, and then how fast are we going? Oh, you could go 100 plus. Oh, so that thing would really move. Oh, sure. All right, what what kind of... uh, Tell us about the brake system on these things. How do you how do you slow down? Because these I, things weigh a bit. Yeah, whenever I see like you know, I'm watching a movie or something like that, you've got a train and the guy sees like the woman in the red dress trying to like get out of her car she's, at she's the intersection. She's tied to the tracks or yeah, something she, she, for some reason. <laughs> and then yeah, there's this guy with his mustache going, Wee! <laughs> Obviously, we see like a guy pull a lever and that's like, the obviously you've got a, you said you've got a lever for the brake. Yes. But how does this braking system actually work to stop the train? It must be a hell of an ABS system. It well, it's it's air brakes. Um, it's all pneumatic powered. The um, the system has been virtually unchanged since um, uh, Westinghouse uh, came up with it back in the late 1800s. Um, and it's just it's an air brake system where uh, you have a brake an air brake line that runs from the head of the train to the rear that operates the braking system on each rail car, and then each rail car has a system of levers that apply pressure to the shoes that apply pressure to the wheels that slow the train down. So are these like external brake pads that just rub against the wheel itself? It's not like a disc brake unit. No, it's it? a shoe. Just, just yeah, like it's your a drum brake, brake shoe that runs. Yeah, correct. It's a brake shoe that runs directly on the wheel. Does it know when the, when the wheel actually stops moving? Cause like locks up. Yeah. Locks up. Or is there any way no. to, does it, or it doesn't matter? No, it, no, it doesn't know. The brake doesn't know. There isn't any sort of, a smart system like ABS that uh, knows when the wheel is sliding. So that's when um, you start, you know, locking it up and you hear the screech and the sparks are going and it's very dramatic. Does that actually happen? <laughs> yes, it can. Yes. <laughs> so how many guys are on board each of these trains? Wait, one, I have one more ridiculous question. Oh, okay. I'll just, I, this, let's just I'll, make it all ridiculous questions. <laughs> when I was a kid, uh-huh. I would always, I would live near oh, the train track. I would, pennies? I would always take coins yeah. and I would go put them on the track. How many dollar dollars worth of coins do you think you've driven over in your life <laughs> and seen people go and put pennies out there to get them flattened by the train? Oh, hundreds, hundreds of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> hundreds of dollars in pennies. <laughs> you ever see anybody doing this? Oh, all the time, yeah. It's got it's dangerous, right? I mean, you, obviously, Extremely. you don't... So you, as the engineer, I also know there is a conductor. What is the difference between a conductor and an engineer on the train? Well, the engineer is basically in charge of just the, the actual train itself, the movements forward and back, stopping and so forth. The conductor is pretty much the boss of the train. He takes care of everything else from the paperwork 
to the uh, contacting the dispatchers and the yardmasters and getting authorities, um, taking care of the setouts and pickups along the route. Um, yeah, so is it, is it just the two guys then on a normal train like this? In general, yes. Uh, there will be three-man crews, um, but there hasn't been a standard of three-man crews in quite some time. So tell me also about, I mean, has have these locomotives really changed that much? Are there any systems that have made it, um, I guess, more automated? Is anything different, that, or is it basically just the lever and the brake, and it's you? In general, in general, it's all the same basic principles that has come up since the diesel locomotive was invented. Um, it's just the different levers, you know, we're doing different things, but it's all pretty much the same, um, same thing since, since they were first, uh, first invented back, what, thirties uh, or forties, something like that. Fifties. So tell us about, um, the automation system on board. Yeah. So the PTC system that was, um, came up with back in 2008, when there was a really bad head-on collision between a freight train and a passenger train. And uh, I believe 25 people passed away and there was over 100, like 130 people died. And it was a system to have the train be able to stop itself when the engineer was not paying attention or was otherwise occupied. Well, I have to I have to read a little bit about this accident because I looked this up after you told me about it. The mm -hmm. Chatsworth trains collision occurred on Friday, September 12th in 2008. And basically it was on a single track in Ventura County, just east of uh, Los Angeles or west of Los Angeles here. And the trains engineer, 46-year-old Robert Sanchez, was for the collision, he was texting. And he did not see a signal and basically went head-on into an Amtrak full of people. Wow. Did he survive? The I engineer? Know. I don't know if the engineer survived. I don't recall. Yeah, that's, I mean, obviously, you know, you think about something like this, you you want a person there because the responsibility of carrying... He did die. ...hundreds of thousands of tons of stuff, goods, coal, chemicals, especially dangerous chemicals, you want a person there, right? You need a person there right. to monitor what's going on. But at the same time, to me, it seems like it would be somewhat of a, a system that you could automate some of it and take the human element out, right? There, There is, yes. There is other automation. We don't have it on the short line I work for. There are automations on the engine that will have, it's like a trip advisor. It's like a trip optimizer where the grade of the track and the speeds and such are all inputted into a computer. And then the computer determines what... Um, what or how to operate this particular train. So it just um, basically modulates the, the the throttle up and down based on the curves of the track, the, in, the incline, stuff like that. It just knows where it needs right. to be. Right, right. And PTC works similar to that, but it is less intrusive when it comes to just the regular operation of the train. It only it only intrudes when, the, when it senses that the engineer isn't paying attention. Um, how, how does, does it, it know that? How, yeah, how does it know? <laughs> well, through um, GPS and and Wi-Fi and 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 all kinds of other like cryptid radio signals, where it it knows where it's at on the train, and then it also knows the different switch positions and um, control points um, and such. So it, it'll know. Okay, you have this much weight. You need this much time to stop. If he doesn't react within this period of time, then I will intrude. It's kind of how the computer works i guess so it's not like the new mercedes we talked about on a friday where it actually has a camera looking at the guy <laughs> uh no no that's a whole different that's a whole different ball of wax there is yeah uh, no kidding there, there is there, inward facing cameras in the trains so um tell us about these locomotives or i guess engines as they're more commonly referred to today mm -hmm. what is the powertrain of these we talked a little bit about the history leading up to it and tell us about this kind of diesel electric system and how it works so the, the, just a, a large diesel engine, uh, can be anywhere from, you know, 12 cylinder to 16 cylinder, um, upwards of 4,400 to 6,000 horsepower, um, <laughs> running a, uh, running a generator, uh, electrical generator that runs traction motors to each axle on an engine. 
So it's basically like a hybrid, but without any sort of battery. There's no battery involved, is there? No, there's no battery involved when it comes to the motive power of it, no. It's all based on power output from the generator to the uh, traction motors. So can the can the train run on the diesel engine if it needs to, or is it purely driven off the electric motors? There is no mechanical connection between the diesel engine and the axles. It's all through the uh, generator. So for each of these locomotives that we see, is it one diesel engine per locomotive, or are there a couple in there gen- running generators? Or Nope, there's just the one just engine the in one there running. massive engine. What is the displacement on those? Do you know, like, liters or... Off the top of my head, we have one that I know for sure. It's 3,000, uh, what was it? 3,500 cubic inches. <laughs> <laughs> and that's which it's that, okay. So think of a 350, right? Like a Chevy mm-hmm. small block 350. That's it's 20 of those, basically. No, it's a hundred yeah. of those. 350, he, his is 3,000. Your math is it's 10 of them, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, like, it. it's like it's, it's like 10 of them. Uh, yeah. The train would be much bigger if it was. A, yeah. Yeah. How many amps are these putting out, these 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 generators? I mean, the amount of they power can, that 4,000 to 6,000 horsepower could generate in terms of electricity is crazy. We actually we actually run it in amps is how we determine how much power we're putting to the, to the ground. Um, and we go up to 1,500 amps. And do we know what the voltage is associated with uh, that? The top of my head, I don't. Okay, know. I, it's, it, I'm sure it's the thing where you, if you touched it, you would just turn to dust immediately. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the end. What about yeah. fuel? I mean, these things have to have massive diesel tanks. Oh yeah, they're huge. Um, anywhere from um, you know 1,500 gallons on like a regular yard switcher to um, four or five thousand gallon tanks on some of these longer, you know, larger engines. Yeah, but that's it's. It sounds like a lot, but for the amount of stuff that you're moving, right. it's actually one of the most efficient ways to move product across the country. It's way yeah, more efficient than cars is. or trucks or anything else, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think it was 2018 CSX uh, Rail Rail Line out west or out east, excuse me, did a study and did all the math and figuring, and they figured they could move a ton of freight 500 miles on one gallon of fuel. Whoa! Yeah, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredibly efficient. Obviously, you need mm-hmm. to get it to some sort of spur or hub where the trucks take it from there. But just oh, in terms sure. of pure uh, efficiency, it's it's unparalleled. Yeah, absolutely. So these locomotives, what is what is the type of locomotive that you run right now? Um, EMD. Um, it was at at one time it was a division of General Motors. Um, it's called the Electromotive Division of General Motors. Um, that's been since sold, but um, there's two na- main locomotive um, producers now. It's EMD and uh, General Motor or General Electric. And what the is GE. the layout of these? I remember someone told me that the big hump you see in the front of like the standard diesel locomotive—that's actually the toilet. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> is the bathroom up front? I would yes. just pee out the window. That's. I mean, that's what. I... Yes, there are there are uh, facilities on the train, and they are usually in the front. So you have basically your control cabin, you have your bathroom, and is the rest of it just pure engine? It's all the engine compartment, yeah. So you have all of your electronics. Um, Your electrical room is right behind the controlling cab, and then your generally it's your generator, then your diesel engine, and then your air compressors at the uh, at the rear. I suppose you need a massive air compressor for all the braking. Huge air compressors, yes. I imagine that having the toilet in front of the driver is also a very good incentive not to run into anything. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose so. So how how much weight can one of these engines actually pull? Or how many cars, I guess? How many cars? Like, like I said, it depends. It's, it's probably more of the weight, I guess. Um, they figure horsepower per ton. So if you have, say, a 4,000 horsepower engine, and if you want to try and keep your horsepower per ton at 0.5, you know, you can run 8,000 tons with this one 4,000 horsepower engine. Wow. And if you get over that as far as load, that's when you see these locomotives like linked together, like you have two or three of right. them in a, in a train. And when they do that, are the controls all linked? Does that mean there's still two guys per locomotive or are the other ones just kind of running off the first one? No, the other ones are all running off of the first. They're all linked. Um, they're all linked, and, and one engineer is controlling all, however many there are. One other thing we mentioned last week was rail size and how it's measured by weight. 
Are modern mm-hmm. trains heavier, I guess, than their their old steam counterparts? Is the rail larger then? Uh, yeah, the rail's rail's larger. The engines themselves, um, I don't recall what a steam engine average steam engine weighs, but um, some of the larger, like the AC forty four hundreds, is a pretty common engine for the the larger railroads, and those are um, three hundred fifteen thousand pounds. Um, so figure that into tons can't do the math right off the top of my head no worries but um but yeah it's it is um it is it is a lot heavier i mean you can have trains 10,000 20,000 tons um and then the rails are anywhere from 115 to 136 um in my just research for doing this interview i found um there was one i think the pennsylvania railroad had 155 pound rail and that's measured by the weight of a what three foot section or something like that. Yeah, three foot section weighs on let's say one hundred fifty five pounds. Chunk of metal that is. Big. Yes. You know what's yes. great about those is you can cut them into little one foot sections and use them as an anvil in your garage. Yes. Yes. They <laughs> work really. Very well it's, I know guys do awesome, that. Yeah. Yes, they work very well for that. So you mentioned the uh, the automated system, the PTC system, mm-hmm. and with that, our train accident is basically a thing of the past, or is it still, I mean, there's still danger associated with trains. Oh, absolutely. Um, it, it's not going to be a thing of the past. There's still going to be idiots out there um, driving around the gates, um, trespassing, um, putting doing stuff like that. Putting pennies on the rails. Yes, putting, putting pennies on the rails. But, um, but yeah, as far as like train on train collision, it is going to be reduced quite a bit. I remember doing dumb stuff like walking up to the train tracks when the train was there and reaching out and touching the train. As it's going by? As it's going by. Just like... (laughs) 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 I'm a young boy. It's dangerous. It gives you... That's a thrill, you know? Mm -hmm. You just reach out and you just just touch it as it's going by and you just touch the car with your finger. You know? What a stupid thing to do. But man, it was... Trains are so cool and they're just... They... As a young boy, it's this huge engine, all this power and weight and motion and speed and danger yeah. and touching something like that as a, a 12-year-old kid. You were 12 doing Probably, this? I don't know. I'm just guessing. It's pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be a thrill. Yeah, so tell me about you know some of the other dangers associated with it. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, trespassers. Um, like I said, uh, people driving around the gates, ignoring the crossings and stuff. And it's just, it's... Uh, it's an unfortunate uh, part of the job is the having to know that at some point, you know, you may end up taking someone's life, um, not of your doing. It's just their stupidity. Wow. So, yeah, it's really, it's not a matter of if, but, but when in some cases. Wow. Jeez. Well, thank you for coming on. And uh, it's always great to get a first person perspective of being behind mm-hmm. the, I was going to say the wheel of one of these things, but again, no steering wheel. No, behind the sticks. Behind the sticks. Behind the sticks. I like I that. It. Awesome. Well, thank you, Toby, very much. Yeah, thank you. Take care of yourself, buddy. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. Now, before we get too much further, let's take a break here and talk about our sponsor, Oberk Car Care. Oberk is your source of professional detailing compounds and supplies that is research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. These are the guys that are actually passionate about detailing and know firsthand what makes a good product. And they truly are great products. I love it's a simple, foolproof two-step system, easy, and gives an amazing finish. And right now, they're offering a whopping 20% off your order when you use the code OVERCREST. The discount code is good not only on OBERCCARCARE.com, but also on DetailedImage.com and CarSuppliesWarehouse.com. Please go check them out today. Many, many thanks to to him for calling into the podcast, yeah, giving thanks, us a Toby. little of a perspective on what it's like to be an engineer. I think it would be, um, I think it would be a blessing and a curse at the same time. If you're sitting up in that cabin and you're just rolling through all these, you know, these beautiful places, but you can't stop. Or you can't take that little side road that you want to. Oh, look at gravel road. I'll just do a little drift Reno right into this (laughs) and go check it out. But at the same time, this, the solitary, you know, sitting there by yourself, you know, as the world goes by, it must be, it must be pretty great. Yeah, well, it's always a boyhood dream of every young boy. You see the train go by, you go, I want to drive that. Or touch it, in my case. I, but you, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't do that. No, I did not do that. It is it is an incredible machine, and I think that um, over the last three episodes, we've shown how much it changed 
the American world. landscape, the world, really, but yes. the American landscape as a whole, because it was just this huge expanse, this huge place, yep. and the the railroad literally dominated it and made America its bitch and basically <laughs> changed everything forever. Yeah, it is an awesome, basically, piece of history and industry today. So I got to figure out what we're going to do. We've been work, working so diligently on this. I have no plans for next week, so I'm going to have to come up with something since you worked so hard on this, but I'm sure we'll have a, a great interview uh, coming up. I've got a few things in the in You the got hopper. a few things up your sleeve? I have a few things up, our, up my sleeve. So we will see you guys on Friday. Awesome. Take care, guys. Mm-hmm.